everyone. Welcome to uh, Seven Elite Academy online masterclass sessions. Uh, hope you're all having a great day. Today we are joined by uh, another special guest, uh, a guest that uh, I know, um, a guest that has definitely obviously supported my career and developed my career. Uh, he's a guest that's definitely kind of gone through the whole football journey, uh, former professional player, uh, academy coach, first team professional coach, and, and now uh, currently working with the, the PFA, uh, the Professional Footballers, Footballers Association, uh, as a coach educator, a top coach educator, and that is uh, Neil Bailey. Neil, thanks a lot for joining us today. How are you, first and foremost? I'm good, thanks, and uh, thanks for the invitation, Anthony. It's uh, a pleasure to, uh, to join you. No, it's, it's, it's appreciate, it, we really appreciate uh, having you on board uh, to, to take the time out to, to do something like this. And especially someone like yourself, who's, who's kind of pretty much been there, wore the T-shirt from, from kind of all different angles of playing the game and, and coaching the game. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will, uh, will take a lot from uh, today's Masterclass session with yourself. But uh, just to kind of start it all off, Neil, um, as you know, we're in this crazy situation of uh, COVID-19. Uh, I have spoken to, to many kind of professionals within the game from playing, coaching, uh, media, uh, about how they've been kind of, you know, uh, dealing with this current situation and, and kind of managing it um, and still kind of being productive within the game through this current situation. Uh, how, have, how have you found it yourself, Neil, and, and kind of how have you managed to kind of get through it uh, each week so far? Yeah, well, it, it's, as everybody's finding, it's been a big challenge, and especially for people who are used to working outdoors or going out meeting coaches and working with coaches. So that's been a challenge in itself. Uh, I mean, there's been some benefits. We've all got a little bit better on the, uh, on the IT and the video meetings. Uh, and the, the big impact it's had for us is the the face-to-face -face direct contact and the practical work. We've not been able to do that. So we have tried to uh, maintain contact with a lot of the coaches we've been working with. Can you just tell us down a little bit about the, the courses that are, like, are still ongoing? And I'm sure, obviously, your, your dialogue with the, the coaches that you're uh, kind of overseeing and, and working with. Uh, just tell us a little bit about, you know, what's kind of going on behind the scenes with the... Uh, with yourself and with the courses and having that kind of link and communication with them coaches? Yeah, well, uh, I'm sure further on in the interview, you'll be, we'll be discussing courses, but the, the current ones that have been up and running, they're, they're all at different stages. Mm -hmm. uh, some lads were coming towards the end of a course and perhaps needed still a little bit of practical work and complete the theory aspects, the, the tasks that we asked them to do. Uh, so. It, the main focus at the minute for them is to, to perhaps get the off the field tasks done. So there's yeah. some theory work alongside analysis and psychology and mm -hmm. uh, uh, fitness work. So the, the, the ones I'm in contact with and speaking with, they're, they're busy getting on with that. So when we do get back, they can just <laughs> park that and get on with the, the, the pitch work, which is what they all enjoy. So, so, so basically, what you're saying, Neil, is uh, there's there's no excuses for not getting your uh, your, your paperwork in and, and getting it all kind of up to date. 
No, no, it's just we're just virtually cracking the whip at the moment, <laughs> rather than uh, doing it directly. Brilliant, brilliant. And let's let, let's definitely keep on the subject of the the PFA, which is uh, obviously a big one for this uh, masterclass session, and and kind of for all our listeners and to everyone out there um, who's kind of are uh, non-members of the PFA. Um, obviously, they'll they'll know what the PFA and you know just time and time again we we see a lot of the things that the PFA do and a lot of that time is kind of when you see it on maybe Sky Sports News the PFA have issued a statement on whatever it may be. Tell us a little bit and give us a little bit of an insight behind the, the PFA, Neil, about um, what it do, actually does kind of provide in terms of opportunities for you know, players in the academy system just before they kind of go on playing professional, players that are kind of, um, you know, throughout during their career, and then for kind of ex-players or ex-pros that are coming out the game and, and looking to kind of get into uh, a career as such, but still within the game. Just give us a little bit of insight around yeah, the it's a, it, it's a challenge, really, because at times, you're right, they do get a bit of... Uh, publicity but sometimes it's not always the best because uh, it's always like the fighting for this or the fighting for that and uh, a lot of the work they do under the radar gets gets missed a little bit uh, so the, the PFA is what it is professional footballers association it's the players union and they represent players in all aspects of, of the work really and and the, the biggest benefit that I, I would let people know about is that once you remember you remember for life so if you've been an apprentice and not got a contract and been released you're still a pfa member for the rest of your life and in terms of current professionals there's only ever about two thousand current players in when you yeah. add all the squads up but actual pfa members there's over fifty thousand who are still living who all have access to further education and grants for operations and things like that so that that's the biggest advantage to to being in the union is that you're a member for life and you can call on the support in uh, for whatever you need throughout your life uh, the different departments we have obviously i'm in the coaching department but there's an education department so if players come out of the game and they want to study for something else they'll get funding towards that there's a community arm to the PFA where I think the last year, the last uh, numbers we had, there was over 40,000 visits wow. from players to community projects and visits. You know, it might be yeah. going to a school and doing a presentation or something, but over 40,000 in, in a year. So that's a big arm. There's a player agency where, uh, you know, you know all about agents. The PFA have one as well, where it's, you know, for the player. Not There's no external uh, agendas or anything like that. They started to give youth advice, so pre-coming into a professional game, the, you know, there's, there's kids in academies now from six, seven, eight years of age. And a lot of parents might not know the ins and outs and regulations. So there's an, a department at the PFA who looks after that, which is getting bigger and and there's a legal department if they need advice in independent advice that way 
and, and of course the biggest growing area at the minute that's uh, on message is, is mental health and welfare where there's pressures and players are opening up a lot more than they used to do and, and that's becoming a big demand on uh, on the resources at the PFA. And, and that kind of spills into the one of the questions that I was thinking while you were talking about all these different departments and I, you're quite right mental health uh, I tell you, mental health awareness is, is continuing to grow, I think, more and more. I think more people and more players and coaches and people within the game are, are starting to open up a little bit more, which is, which is great. And, and knowing now that there's uh, further resources and further departments yeah. to, to support um, yeah. you know, people um, with, with that uh, kind of aspect. But then you were talking about all the other departments. Now, you've been with the PFA, Neil, for... Don't know, maybe nearly twenty years. I, I think it is. And how have you seen then the uh, the Professional Footballers Association kind of grow um, ever kind of since you've joined it? Because as you were saying there, the game evolves, and there's there's more. There seems to be just more things kind of dripping into the game that obviously is really important. And then for that, you need the further resources and education. So, how has how have you kind of seen the PFA grow over the years? Uh, it's not grown in its uh, purpose and yeah. reason for being. It's yeah, always okay. to look after the players. Uh, the number of players has increased. Uh, the finance in the game at the minute, certainly at the top end, is, is dramatically increased. Uh, and they've had to evolve with that. And, and the biggest... Uh, not, not a tribute, I work for them, not a tribute, but is the fact that it doesn't matter if you're the biggest earner at a top Premier League club or you're the, a young professional at a League Two club, you get the same amount of support and access to yeah. grants and, and services that, that, as anybody would. Uh, and I think that's the biggest one. They've, they've had to develop in terms of this technology and the develop a website and keep progressing with things like that. And these other areas that have, have been added on as they've come in into force, like the mental health, that's yeah. become a, a big area. And of course, the, the, the biggest change is they know a lot of members in the PFA is the women's game. Yes. You know, and certainly over, over in the States, it's a massive uh, operation and it's getting bigger and bigger over here. And the, the developed clubs that have full-time players and are, you know, full members of the PFA as well. So that's certainly an area that's uh, that's developed. And one of the, uh, definitely one one kind of service that obviously you provide uh, within the PFA, which is the, the, the coach education and uh, the, the contact with your coaches, the, the, the into, into uh, visits. Um, and one in particular is the, the the level one and the level twos that you do within the the academies for the uh, the, the apprenticeship players. Um, you you under under eighteens and under twenty threes. Um, and obviously, you know, through through my time at Liverpool, and I know you've got how many courses you do every single year. Uh, do you feel, obviously, a lot of the players kind of utilise that surface within those age groups? And I do know that, and I do get it as well, that some players are still, you know, tunnel-focused 
on, you know, the the purpose of making, you know, uh, a prof- being a professional footballer. So the, the coaching part of it might not be as a priority at all to some of them. Um, have you ever seen some of the um, some of those players take full advantage of that surface? And have you seen any that have kind of gone on to to kind of make good careers as a coach uh, within the game? Yes, uh, you're quite right. Apprentices they, they sign as an apprentice at a pro club, and the, their ambitions to become a first team player, and we, yeah. we fully understand that. But the stats are saying that the fallout rate from players coming into the game is still quite high. So part of the PFA's role is to provide those players with a backup plan and a, an opportunity to start a second career if they can't get can't stay in football. And, and the coaching qualifications part of that. And some of the young lads, they don't see the value of it at, at this stage. And some of the courses can be quite, quite challenging when uh, they're yeah. not engaged or they don't see the value of it. But I think more and more, they, are seen to, uh, they do seem to be buying into it. Uh, the support from clubs is getting a lot better. Uh, I think in, not in the distant past, it, it was probably seen as a, something to, oh, we, they had to do it, so let's get it out of the way. I think they see the value of it. And, you know, the, you'll know from the education department at Liverpool, you know, they're very supportive of the work I do, they're helpful with it. And a lot of their players are now coming, coming on to the UEFA B. Yeah. Three or four last year on last year's course. There's three or four more this year coming on to it. So it is being seen now as a, a genuine pathway to either stay in the game or make a career outside the game. And yeah. a lot of lads come over to uh, America and yeah. with scholarships and settle there and, and, and get into coaching that way. In our country, there's a lot of private academies setting up and soccer schools that's a, a way of uh, using the, the qualifications and a, a trend that we're seeing as well a lot of the pro clubs are taking some of these lads back in yeah if they get the qualifications they're familiar with the process and the setup of a of the club and they're taking them in to work in the academies and and keep that continuity going so that's certainly a, an area that seems to be growing. And the fact that players understand now that you have to be qualified, you can't just get a job based on your playing reputation, that message is getting through and a lot more uh, are taking the, the qualifications earlier and, and trying to go through it in the right way. I think it's, I think it's you know, a great surface. Um, that in particular, uh, along with all the others as well. I, and I, from past experience, I'll, I'll never forget it in my, in my early days of coaching at Liverpool 2006. And uh, the, the youth team had just done kind of back-to-back FA Youth Cup wins. And I think it was 06, 07. And uh, within the following year, there was actually two of the players, uh, part of them squads that had kind of, you know, just fell out of, out of the game because of the... Uh, the, the PFA coaching courses and I think they had uh, got the level twos through yourselves they went straight into uh, a coaching program within the academy itself and it's I think it was a, like a reality check for myself who back then was 
you know, a lot younger, uh, less experienced, a little bit naive to think these these two kids were just like on the, you know back to back FA Youth Cup wins, and, and now here they are kind of coaching, yeah. uh, and they turned into you know very very good coaches, and have gone on to have very good coaching careers uh, around the world as well. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful resource, and I think it's definitely one that, you know, again, it's, it's hard, isn't it, Neil, for some players to truly, you know, see the, the coaching part of yeah. it. The, the, uh, not the sad side of that, but we still do level twos for ex-professionals, so lads who have fallen out of the game will still yeah. run an, an ex-pros course. And the number of players who come on it <laughs> who had the opportunity to do it when they're an apprentice and didn't do it, didn't take it seriously, and are now four or five years behind schedule, really. They could have been yeah. far further on. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but yeah. a consistent thing that they say, I wish we'd have done it when we were apprentices. Well, well that's an interesting one. I'll never forget um, when, when, when Stephen Gerrard was... was doing his badges with yourself, Neil, and um, I'll never forget his, his conversation with uh, Lucas Lever when he was starting to do his. And the, the quote that Stephen said to Lucas was, I wish I'd done this years ago mm. because of, the, I think, the buzz that he had and, uh, and what he got from the, uh, the, the, the coaching courses. Yeah. And there's, there's advantages and disadvantages, yeah. you know, because... The advantages Stephen would have when he started his careers was the vast knowledge and experience that he gained as a player. Yeah. But he then had to learn how to transfer that knowledge across to other players. Yeah. Uh, and, and the problem with players, when they leave it till that time, they want all the qualifications tomorrow. And, <laughs> and the, the process is quite a lengthy one if you want yeah. to do it properly. Uh, and Stephen was a perfect example of a top player who did go about it properly and did put the time in and went through every level from level two all the way through. He's, he's completed his pro license now. But his, uh, his attitude towards learning and wanting to be better, not just collecting the qualification, was yeah. first class and, and gives me as a coach educator plenty of ammunition to to quote at people when uh, when they want to take shortcuts or fast <laughs> yeah. to the yeah. qualifications, you know. So crack the whip out. Well also I just you know you are there to be better and, and learn the tr learn the job, not just collect the qualification. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And and I think Stephen's an interesting one, I think maybe on his career and I'm sure it's happened to, to many, many others. Uh, in, a, in a similar situation to Stephen is when, like, if a, if a player was kind of currently going through their courses and uh, kind of ex-player or ex-pro or coach, <laughs> if it's matter, are doing the courses with yourselves and end up finding their career kind of going overseas, how does that then work, especially if you're in, in the middle of the course, would, they, would the coach just have to kind of put it on hold, Neil, or... Uh, is there still opportunities to continue that, uh, that that course, that kind of connection with the PFA and development if they were to kind of go overseas and play or coach elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, again, technology is a massive help in, in that respect. Uh, Skype calls and video calls and 
film sessions that they can send over so you know and you can give them feedback on sessions they've done that way I mean I was fortunate enough to be able to go out and do some support actually face to face with a with a couple of lads who, who were working over there so there's still we still try and uh, cater for the needs of each individual and what what their context is so it's not a barrier to completing a course we just have to find a way of of giving them the support they need yeah and then keeping on the support and the and the mentoring what you what you're talking about neil is um so you, obviously you've been doing the, the tutoring and the mentoring for, for for many many how many years is it coming up to you now since you've been doing something like this neil uh yeah, it's probably going on 20 years now. 20, yeah, 20 years. And I'm finishing the coaching to coach education, yeah. Yeah, so just tell me then, obviously, coaching and coach mentoring are two different things, um, and coach tutoring. And tell me then, like, uh, you know, the, the, the love and the, and the passion for, for what you do around the, the, the coach education and mentoring. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a bit of a... There are actually mentoring courses now that you can you can go on and yeah. sort of get qualified. I wouldn't class myself as a as a mentor as mm -hmm. such or a qualified mentor, but the way coach education has gone, mm -hmm. it's it, it's developing into that type of role where you, there's individual support. Whereas lads used to come in, do a course, go away, come back, be assessed. That was it. End of end of the relationship yeah uh, it, it's a lot different now the delivery of the courses is different the this content on courses is different and the way we support coaches is is different so i know i know what you mean in terms of mentoring uh funny enough, i read a quote this morning just purely by coincidence from a, a writer and philosopher who won the nobel peace prize in 1952 Albert Schweitzer, his name. Yeah. And his quote was, uh, I'll paraphrase, but it was about, you know, I don't know uh, what your destiny is, but the ones who'll be really happy are the ones who seek and learn how to serve. Love it. And I thought that Love just fits it. into the, the role we do, really. And, and you've got to have a, well, in all the roles, playing, coaching, coach educating. If you've not got the enthusiasm, to get out and, and give it your best each yeah. and every day, you're not going to be successful. So the current role we have now is to, you know, to give players the best support you can give them and, and help them get as good as they can be. And like in many ways for kind of coaches when they, when they kind of get that, um, that buzz around seeing a player that they've kind of, you know, had some kind of part to play within the player's journey to go on to do great things within the game. I'm sure it's very similar then to yourself, Neil, when, whenever you're doing the, the, the courses and kind of coaches that you work closely with, kind of doing, you know, some, some brilliant things in the game. I'm sure you get a lot of, um, a lot of thrill from that. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, and, and the, the thing now is it's encouraged that ongoing relationships and, uh, is encouraged and the way you develop that as coaches go through the, the qualification pathway uh, when they do get the yeah the last qualification it's not the end of the learning it's it's a lifelong learning now that's the way 
the courses are sold. Uh, and it, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's nice when you, you keep that contact. You, you ring players, or, and you ring sorry, you ring knows the coaches and managers, or they ring you for for advice. Or it, yeah. it's you know, it's it's a, a rewarding part of the uh, of the role. I'm sure it is. And and talking about the actual down. The, the players, and let's even so the coaches as well. So the coaches that are on the PFA, uh, because again, maybe for the, all the listeners, I think you know, the, to, to kind of give them a, like a little bit of the picture that it doesn't just kind of work from, you know, when, you, when you're playing, you've got to get all the badges to be uh, a coach. You know, some of the coaches that are still working within the pro game are still undertaking, um, you know, a licenses, pro license course with yourselves and so on. Yeah. And similar with the players, especially around their kind of playing schedule, how do you manage them, uh, especially with the, the kind of the modern day A license and pro license courses? Yeah. How, do you, how do you manage their, their schedules with obviously yourself, but also with their kind of schedule to kind of get through these courses? Yeah, it is difficult and it is quite a, a demand and a, and a challenge. You know, despite what what you read, players, the, the demand on the time is quite high. You know, yeah. and, and physically and mentally. You know, and when they get the chance of a break, so the close season. This is where where the courses have changed. It used to be they either had two weeks holiday with the family. Certainly, the higher profile players they either had two weeks holiday with the family, or they had to go to St George's Park or Lillyshaw, as it used to be, to do the the course and quite rightly I think the bigger players spend time with the family so the way the course is delivered is a lot a lot more player coach centred and uh, a lot of it is to meet them where they're at and by that I don't mean physically where they're at but their situation and their context we try and fit in around that uh, and try and understand it and uh, work out what the strengths are. So, for example, the, the top players you've mentioned already, if I'm supporting them, I'm not going to be teaching them technical and tactical knowledge. That theirs is higher than mine, because they've played at a high level for a long, long time. But there'll be something that they need to work on and develop, and you find that. So it's working out what the needs of each individual coach is and uh, helping them develop that, but also build on the strengths they've already got. Yeah. And time is a, it's a big issue because it, a lot of this support now is one-to-one, yeah. whereas it used to be bring everybody on a course. Now it's, uh, you're going out and, and watching them work in their own environment, which is better yeah. for them. Uh, and I think it develops them a little bit quicker as well. And I think obviously that's again yourself and and the, you know the PFA you know compromising with their with the careers and, and and doing whatever they can to to kind of be mindful and and you know and, and do it at a pace where it can be achieved. Um, so that, and I'm sure that's of course definitely a, a, a you know an obstacle or or definitely a challenge. And you know I remember on on one of our courses, Neil. Uh, you know, one of the coaches unfortunately couldn't, you know, do uh, the month of January um, block 
because it was transfer, um, the transfer window was, yeah. was about to close and he had to stay with his club and so on. So what are then some of the, the toughest challenges then for yourself, Neil, around this role or around the, the, you know, the, the stuff that you do with the PFA? What are the, some of the, the tough challenges that you face? Uh, I think managing your diary yeah, and, and trying to marry it with the diaries of the people who are the ones who are certainly working in the game, the ones who are trying to find a way in it, it's a lot easier. But with people who are actually in the game, it's, and especially current players, you know, and you, you might have dates in the diary where, you know, they know they, they get these schedules a month in advance and they know they're going to be off on a certain day. So you book a day in, you'll do some work that day. But then the night before, the game doesn't go as planned. So the, the day off's cancelled, they're in that day and <laughs> you can't fit it in because you've got other things in. So yeah. juggling that and solving that conundrum is probably the biggest challenge to, so that you maintain some form of continuity because it, it's quite easy to go several weeks without seeing them or being able to get in. Yeah. And you find you're back to square one sometimes. So it's better if you can, you can keep that continuity. So that, that's probably the biggest challenge. The way you use it is, and, and the way I always try and uh, uh, work with players, is to build it around the games, whether you're playing or coaching, link the practical work we do to things that are actually happening in their game. Yeah. And by, by doing it that way, I think it keeps it fresh in their minds as well. So then, Neil, tell me, you've, you've played the game as a professional. Uh, you were an academy coach uh, for many years at Manchester United. Uh, obviously, first-team coach uh, at, at Sunderland. Been with the PFA for, for many, many years as a, a coach educator. So, like I said earlier on, when uh, introducing you to the, uh, the, the masterclass session, you've pretty, in a, in a progressional way, kind of, gone through the, the whole journey from there and off down and from, from the bottom to the top. How have you then adapted or have you had to adapt your kind of your personality and pick things up along the way from going from, uh, from player to coach, academy coach to then first team professional coach to, to what you do now within the PFA? Yeah, the, the, there are differences in terms of the skills and qualities you need in terms of the delivery of your job or the carrying out of your job and your responsibilities. Uh, I think that, you know, I mentioned it earlier on, enthusiasm, whatever role you've got, if you're not enthusiastic, you'll, you won't perform as, as well as you should do. Uh, if you've not got that desire to, to learn yourself, I think you've always got to be looking to evolve. The game's changing all the time. Uh, you've got to change with it and adapt it. So that's, I still watch a lot of games and either link to lads you're working with or apprentices you're working with, watching them play. So I think if, as long as you can keep the role along with the game, you can yeah. stay relevant and the topic of conversation is current yeah. rather than what happened years ago or when I played or things like that. It's changed. In my role now, if you start talking about what the game was like when I played, 
yeah. you'd lose the players in five minutes <laughs> because they know more about the current game than I do. Even though I watch it, they're actually playing it. So, it, you know, we try and tap into that, their experience rather than passing our knowledge on to them. It's, yeah. it's, it's drawing their knowledge out of, out of them, really. So that's a, that's a big change. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the role now, the, the challenge I find is if you're not careful, if you don't link it to the game, mm. it, it becomes a theory exercise. Right. And you're just talking from a theoretical point of view of this would happen and that. Whereas, again, if you, if you understand the context of what, where they're working and where they're at, I think it's easier to relate uh, the job of getting better as a coach yeah. maintaining that link to the game that's that's how I try and see it and you, and you mentioned Neil about um, about the game evolving and quite right it, it, it is and it always you know kind of will be um, so as the game's evolving tell us then like about the coaching then so kind of over the years doing what you do how have you seen coaching or coaches coaching evolved over the years in terms of coach education or the co the role of a coach the role of a, the role of a coach the role of a coach how that's changed uh, historically traditionally the coach was king yeah you know it was do it my way or the highway and you know very coach centered in terms of delivery yeah uh, this is what you're doing this is when you do it this is how you do it and there's still a time and place for that I think but as not so much players have changed as people have changed I think they expect a little bit more now so coaches are having to find a different way of getting that knowledge and transferring that knowledge so you know kids in school now are brought up to be asking why whereas if a coach told me to do something it was how many times <laughs> How many times do you want me to do it? Whereas now, if you tell a kid to do something, why? Why am I doing that? So you've got to find different ways of, of getting that uh, message across. So the, the style of coaching has definitely changed and become a lot more player-centred, a lot more ownership on players. And coaches now facilitate learning as opposed to directing the learning. That's probably the biggest change, I would say. So yeah, so you, so coaching styles and coaching delivery and and, and kind of our kind of connection with our players, uh, engagement with our players is is the big one, you would say. Yeah, yeah. The, the coach, the, the trend now is to work out the the human being you're dealing with, as yeah. opposed to just treating him as a commodity to play a game. You know, there's things going on in their lives. Yeah away from football that impact yeah. what they do. So the coach's job now is to, to get to know the person rather than just get to know the player. Yeah. And I think that uh, that's certainly a, a, a big change in coaching attitudes and, and for the better. 100%. And so then when you when you when you're delivering your coaching the, the coaching courses, whether it's level two, you either be A license, pro license. When, especially with the, the coaches that you're observing, uh, making notes on, assessing, 
is there anything that kind of jumps out at you, Neil? So when you when obviously a coach is you know he set up and he starts, is there anything that from you from a, an assessor and a coach educator's point of view that kind of excites you about a coach in particular? Something that you think this this coach has, has kind of got something here? Um, is there something personally that you kind of look out for, or something from you know a, a PFA kind of guideline that is is really kind yeah, of? I've, I've probably touched on it really. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add to it, but it's certainly that enthusiasm. I want somebody to be enthusiastic about it. I want them to show me that they want to learn, they want to get better, and they don't just want to collect the qualification. And we see that quite often, where they're just doing something for the sake of, they'll do enough to meet the criteria, if you like, to pass, yeah. without the real desire to get better at it. Uh, and I, I always go back to, uh, I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to work with Eric Harrison. Eric Harrison's got a big reputation over here with as a youth coach. And I once asked him about the, uh, and sum it up for me in uh, as brief as you can, what the secret is. And, and he just said three things. It, it was uh, be organised, uh, observation. You've got to know what's going on on the field and you've got to inspire. They were the, they were the three qualities that he thought summed up coaching. So I sort of try and use that as my guide. So if I see somebody who's inspirational in his yeah. manner and, and makes me want, you know, excites me, like, well, I want to listen to him more. Mm-hmm. So the way he inspires people, as long as they're well organised, they plan, they prepare, and they actually see what's going on in the session and do something about it. They'd be there. And you've just you've, you've mentioned a, a huge name in terms of especially English Academy football and and, and kind of what that person done for uh, not only for Manchester United but for the English game as well. Someone like Eric Harrison, you know, a, a huge name that won't go away. His, his name won't go away anytime soon. And. I definitely hold him in the in the same kind of breath as um, the likes of your Stevie Highways, your Tony Collars, that were like real pioneer uh, coaches when the academy system was was kind of starting to really kind of you know take off or the youth systems. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about them like Manchester United, Eric Harrison in particular. What kind of you know influence did we well we know what influence he had on some of the players' careers. What was he like then around the the coaches and yourself, Neil? Yeah, I mean, when I when I first went there, you know, you think you know a little bit about coaching and you're full of enthusiasm yourself as a young coach. But when you went there, you realised how much you didn't know. <laughs> and just just sitting in the staff room with your ears open uh, helped you develop. You know, you'd, you'd be a fool not to get better without you know when you were listening and in that company. Uh, but it, but saying that, it was surprisingly simple. There was no real complications to it. You know, the principles of the game are the same. Uh, you know, players had to express themselves. That that was a big thing to me. Uh, make players enjoy it, let them enjoy it, express themselves, work hard. Uh, and just as I thought he'd finished, he pointed to the staff room, the manager's room, and said, oh, by the way, he likes winning. <laughs> So he had to sort of do a bit of everything. 
you know, and uh, I think that was essentially the names you mentioned at Liverpool, you know, uh, Shannon and Huey McCauley and Steve. They were of the same ilk, really, where they, they taught players the game, but in a, in a way that made players enjoy the game. Yeah. And then let's definitely keep on the subject now of Manchester United, you know, such a, such a huge club that has, you know, done wonders for the game in producing some of the, uh, the players that they did, especially through the academy. And, and obviously for you to be around that, Neil, um, where many, many players you, uh, you coached, you know, went on to have, uh, you know, have huge success with the first team at Manchester United, Champions League, Premier League titles, international careers, some that never quite made it at Manchester United but still had great careers within the game. How was then, was that whole experience for you to, to be coaching a, a, a club like Manchester United and, and kind of what it's done for your career as, uh, as for today? Well, like I said previously, you know, you're learning all the time yourself, you know, from the players and, and the staff. Uh, I remember one of the, I'd not been there that long and uh, we were playing uh, Man City in a youth game, a B-team game. You'll remember the, the, in the B-team leagues. We were playing Man City at Platt Lane and we came in at half-time and as we walked into the dressing room, the manager was sat there on a Saturday morning. Sir Alex? Yeah. yeah. Aye, aye, here we go. And he just sat there. So I had to carry on and uh, said my piece, what I thought from the first half. And I think, what do, what do you do here? So I, I just said, do you want to say a few words, boss? And he did. He made one or two relevant points about the game and that was it. And you, wow. and you think, oh, grief. That's, but that's the, that was the cur and attention he gave youth yeah. development and I mean it changed all the years as the demands on the managers grew and grew he, he couldn't devote that amount of time but certainly when I was first there another another day at a, at a home game it was only I only knew this after the game but my mum and dad had been to watch and he'd made them a pot of tea the manager made them a pot of tea before the game <laughs> and she remembered that forever you know, that little gesture of, awesome. uh, that, again, attention to detail and seeing the value, the value of things like that, that yeah. probably a lot of people don't, don't recognise in him. That was the type of thing you, you were picking up all the time. Um, and I've got to mention it, you, you know, you've mentioned in there, Sir Alex Ferguson, and, you know, we've, we've heard kind of many stories in terms of, you know, how he shaped, uh, a lot of players, even from when they were in the academies, you hear like little stories here of like little drop-ins, uh, going round to the houses and as such and so on. You know, just tell us then a little bit of his involvement from back then within the academy and, and how kind of inspirational was it, shall we say, you know, it's a, it's a key word within, within coaching and, and what it means to younger players of his involvement back then. It was just the interest, you know, the fact that he knew he could turn up at a, a game any time and, and watch uh, was two things. One, it, it showed how much he valued the the work that was being done in Centre of Excellence then or and as they became academies. He valued that. Uh, 
but because of the standards he set in terms of how you went about your job, it kept everybody pushing and pushing to, to work to this, as high a standard as you could. Because he was all he was one who, and I still remember, you know, think of this when they talk about players not getting through, and we know it's changed, and uh, the challenge is different now. But he always said, if you get to the standard, you'll get an opportunity. So the fact that he came and watched people encouraged people to get to the standard, because he was true to his word, and he, he did. And long after the you know, the, the class of 92 players were still getting an opportunity as long as they reached, reached the standard. What a great quote that is, by the way. If you, if you get to the standard, you'll get the opportunity. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a brilliant quote. And, uh, and, and you, you, you worked in, you know, with, with many players that went on to play for Manchester United, uh, Neil, uh, went on to win Champions Leagues. Know the the highest kind of accolade you, you can possibly win as a as a, a you know a, a club player and for such a power powerhouse club like uh, Man United. Yeah, and also you worked with many other players as well that had you know fantastic careers within the game. Just then tell us then because you know standards, especially for a club like Man, Man United and 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 like the the quality of the the first team level at that particular time where they were dominating you know, domestically, uh, European titles as well. Just tell us then a little bit about the, 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 the quality of the, the academy players, but then also, like, the, the, the demands, uh, the requirements uh, of some of the players that actually did go on to make a great career within the game to compared to some of the players that just never quite had it and just fell a little bit short away from Manchester United but still in the game, but also for the ones that, that fell out, out the game. What did you find as a, as a youth coach that where it kind of just lacked for some players why they never went on to have careers? Yeah, it's always a, well, it, it's a tough question and, it, and there's, there's no easy answers to it. You know, to, yeah, it, it could keep, be injury yeah, related. You know, sometimes I get a bit uncomfortable around that because a lot of the players who, who did get through to the, highest level mm. you know I mean the, the ones who people will be remembering they, they were slightly before my time there but there were a few others afterwards uh, and I think they'd get through regardless of who worked with them or developed them they've got that yeah. desire dedication uh, attitude to, to get in there but we always had a one of the big guiding principles I picked up there was at some point a player will be ready for first team football and, and if it's not going to be at United for whatever reason the, the players they brought in the young players who'd already got in the first team the ones coming behind at certain points they were ready to play first team football and if it wasn't going to be there it had to be somewhere else and you're right a lot of players the leagues were peppered with yeah. Ex-Man United players and other clubs as well who develop players. And, and you got as much, or I certainly got as much satisfaction out of those lads, the ones who, who might have just got a little taste. Of, you know, Danny Webber and uh, David Healy, Danny Higginbottom. But when you, when you analyse the careers, they've had good careers. Yeah. And you got as much satisfaction out of that 
as ones who, who came through. And I think certainly whether you got into the United team or you had a career somewhere else, you had to show that you could overcome setbacks and you had that resilience to go on and, and still make a career. And I, I remember a quote from uh, Graham Taylor, one of England's ex-managers, and he said something along the lines of it, show me a player who's had 300 games under his belt and I'll show you a good professional. And I thought that was a nice, you yeah. know, even the ones who just get a career at lower leagues and don't make that have still got a good career and have shown good qualities to uh, to stay in the game. Hundred percent. And um, with your game, with with your kind of your, your coaching career, Neil, it then it kind of obviously the opportunity came, um, and I'm, I'm really intrigued to kind of know, and I'm sure the listeners are how this kind of opportunity did come about as well, where. Uh, Roy Keane uh, just being appointed uh, Sunderland manager yes, he was fresh out the game I think he might have been out the game for only a few months maybe a year at most um, got the position where Sunderland I think we're currently lying at the bottom of the, the championship yeah. um, and obviously the opportunity come to, to go and become a first team manager um, uh, at Sunderland uh, to, to assist Roy Keane. How, how did that all come about? It was strange, really, because uh, even though I'd been there and, and Roy been there as a playing captain, I can't say we ever had any long conversations about the game. Or And I'm not uh, naive enough to think I was first choice. <laughs> and I'm sure he'd have asked other people who either couldn't do it and and yeah. eventually and it was just a phone call I was sat at home one, one night and the phone went and it was Roy and did you fan, would I fancy a job so yeah, you try and act cool but <laughs> I made my mind up then you know but obviously yeah. there were procedures processes you had to go through but so yeah and Roy had gone in uh September time they'd started. I think Niall had been uh, holding the fort a little bit, and they'd lost. They got off to a bad start, and they were bottom of the league. Roygan and it was uh, the Christmas period. By the time I was starting, but uh, it, that was a fascinating period. You know, when you think they went from bottom of the league to to actually winning it in May, and it it was a real lesson in momentum. Really, you know, you got you got to a point where you you just felt every time the team went out they were going to win. Yeah, they were scoring spectacular goals, late goals, mirroring a lot of what he'd done at United. Really, you know, you the number of late goals we, we scored that was was incredible, and it was just that defeat never seemed to come into it. Uh, so if, if you could, and I'm sure there's lots of scientific studies going on about momentum, but that was a classic case of uh, momentum and, and a team just steamrolling the way to, uh, to the championship. And how was that for you then, Neil? Had you had any, um, obviously being around any kind of first team coach, was that the first kind of, you know, first team coaching gig that you, you had? And, um, I'd had a little bit. Before I went to United, I was at Blackpool, but I was I was youth team coach at Blackpool. But the, 
that level, at that stage, team coach was a title. Yeah. You're also head of recruiting, head of the centre of excellence, uh, reserve team manager, assistant to the first team manager. Billy Ayer was manager at the time, you know, a great fella. Uh, it was all hands on deck. So, so I'd had a little bit of uh, experience. So by doing the reserves, a lot of the first team lads would come down and play and train. So you'd had a taste of, of working with senior players, but it hadn't been a, a job description type of thing. So it was the first full-time opportunity to, uh, to work with the seniors. And then working with, obviously, someone like Roy Keane, who, let's not be, beat around the bush, an absolute monster of the player, a legend of the game, someone that has got... Still was, he still was at the time. I'm sure he was. Did he did he get in training quite a bit? Was he still not too much, but even the staff bits would have little challenges going and uh, I was soon put him in place anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's definitely one, even to you see him now, I think it's great. He's back, you know, constantly on on, on the punditry on Sky Sports about his his standards, you know, someone that has such such high standards. I think even some of the pundits kind of struggle with the standards that he kind of sets and the standards that he talks about, especially from the, the modern day player, um, where I think some pundits try to kind of say to Roy, well, the game's not what it was when you were playing, Roy. There's other factors and for whatever, he will not kind of tolerate it as an excuse. Um, so then someone like him and the standards, Manchester United, everything that he achieved to freshly kind of coming out of the game as a player into his, his first ever managerial job. How was that then kind of for yourself? How was it from like in, in, the, in the background, like him building the coaching team and, and for you to kind of, you know, work closely with him? Yeah, I mean, he had Tony Lachlan with him as an assistant. I did a bit first team and then I did some of the reserves as well. At the time, did it worked in between? Uh, it's quite simple, really, in a way. It sounds too simple, but you know, I always remember him saying to the players, he only had two rules turn up on time and work hard, you know, and literally that that was it. He wasn't one for finding players and, and doing this, but he, you know, and he did, he had high standards because that's from where he'd worked, from how he'd been as a player, players he'd played with, had all had that sort of attitude. You know, the, 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 some of the training sessions at United were better than some of the games they, they played because they, they challenged each other day in, day out. You know, and uh, I think he just transferred that into his, his, his managing career. And I'm sure over time, it, it, it will have evolved to some degree. Uh, because, you know, it's right, not, not everybody can be at that standard. But I think everybody can strive to be at that standard. And that's, that's what he, uh, that was his biggest thing. You know, if, if you were trying to do the best you can, you would tolerate that. You'd accept mistakes. Yeah. It's if you weren't trying to be as, the best you could be, yeah. that you would challenge players. And then for someone like kind of let's, let's say Roy Keane, and then let's just think about some of the the current kind of players turned into coaches. 
30 from the from the, the same kind of cloth in terms of high standards. You, you look at you know Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, John Terry, just to kind of name a few, you know, captains of England and you know, won all kinds in the game. Again, just monster players mentally on a different level. From you then as a as a PFA coach educator around someone like that kind of that personality. What is then like the advice kind of maybe given to, to some of them players that are kind of going into the coaching um, the coaching world, knowing that, you know, captains and, and, and the demands. Is there any advice that you kind of give them or, because I'm sure, you, I don't know, you can't be going into it as a, in the same aspect as a, as a player, taking that into a coach. Do you have to maybe strip back something or? Uh, I think one of the big things for any player I mean when you're playing even though you're in a team and it's a team game deep down you just make sure you're ready yeah you get yourself ready you prepare yourself you get uh, physically mentally right through you prepare yourself and as long as you're ready to go that, that's about no I know you'll have a, an influence on, on others when you become a manager, certainly, probably a coach is a, a stepping stone towards that. But when you become the manager, you're suddenly responsible for 25 people, not just yourself. Yeah. And I think unless you get to know those different personalities who you're working with, it's difficult to to motivate them. It's hard to do it, you know, one size fits all. You've, you've, as, was, as we mentioned earlier, you've got to get to know the individuals you're working with and find out what makes them tick. Yeah. So that's certainly one, uh, one thing you try and get across. And I think they're sort of bridging that era where, where that was coming in anyway. So they'll be aware of that, yeah. that people are individuals and, and you find it. I think the planning and the preparation is a big shock to them. They don't, I think even when they're playing and they go out onto the training field and the the boxes or the size of the areas that coaches are working with, I don't think they've given it a minute's thought as to why it's that size. What are they trying to get out of the practice? Of course, the what are the outcomes? So I think yeah. that's a big, a big learning area for them in terms of planning and organising your session and linking it to what you want to get out of it. Yeah. Uh, communication is a big one. You know, trans how do you transfer that knowledge that you've got? How do you get get that across and then another thing and, and this comes into it now as, as players are getting so the, the names you mentioned who are now either completed or are doing the pro license a lot of that now is, is looking outside the game looking at other sports looking at other industries and and high performing environments and high performing teams how do they do it how do they go about it and I think it's, and it's not to take away the value of what we do in football, but it's what can we bring back from them that helps us make our players better, our teams perform better. And that's uh, certainly an area that's, that's developing more. And then I don't want to kind of go off too much around that, the, the, you know, your, the, the Sunderland project and the adventure and, and success that you, you had and, and that season, which was a thrilling season, got them into the Premier League and, and so on. So for that, for yourself in particular, Neil, 
that whole um, that time there and, and what you did. Was was there anything from that experience that still to this day you've you, you've you've kind of kept all with both hands and again is is kind of you know developed you as a as a person as a as a coach as a coach educator. Is there anything from that experience that kind of stands out for you? Well, you you, you certainly learn learn things about yourself and how you deal with because up to then I'd, my main role had been about developing developing players uh, making play trying to get players better to get into first teams whereas that role meant you were working with players who were in the first team and and getting them to to win matches to win games of football so you can have all these philosophies and ways of playing and how you would go about it and how you would do it. At the end of each week in that role, you had to try and get three points yeah. and or enough points to stay in that league. And that was a different challenge altogether. It wasn't it was about performance and you had to focus on performance. And if you got your performance right, you hope the results would come. But as we all know that it's not always the case. Yeah. So dealing with that gave you a real insight into uh, into that aspect of, of coaching and managing, which I think now informs some of the work you do on coach education. And it helps you, as I mentioned earlier, it helps you stay away from just that theory aspect. Oh, if you do this, this will happen. And if you do, that's miles away from what happens in the real world, you know, because you're dealing with, human beings all the time and uh, it, it, that brings its obvious challenges and, and it's all right having the theory but you've got to turn that into practice so I think that's that's probably the big thing that's helped me in terms of coach education is, is applying it to, to trying to win a game of football. So then from the coach education point of view Neil obviously you deliver pro license courses you're on them a license courses uh, around the professional game uh, through the PFA. Uh, what's what? What is your kind of thoughts in in terms of like the optimism and, and hope for for English coaches in particular from from what you kind of see um, from from the courses, Neil, for for the future of the game? Yeah, I think it's it's as bright as it's not ever been. I think. It, it's not so much that coaches are, are a lot better. I think they're getting better prepared. Mm-hmm. And I think one or two now are looking beyond our game. There's, there's one or two now starting to work abroad. Uh, whereas that, that was unheard of, you know. And uh, I think certainly on the, the pro license that, are, that we've mentioned, when you get people coming in and people who are at the top end of the game in terms of chief execs and uh, recruiters that way are now starting to look at young British coaches and with the success uh, Stephen's having that you're hoping Frank Lampard will get and other names you've mentioned who are now coming into the game, what would be good for young British coaches is for them to be successful at the bigger clubs. So yeah. that you know, it encourages chairman and chief execs to start looking 
and giving them the opportunity. So we, we talked earlier about opportunities for players. We're now starting to see opportunities for British coaches at the, at the top end of the game. And I think that's to be encouraged. Definitely so. And, and I think it it's, should be knowledgeable as well about some of the fantastic coaches you know, within the Football League or fantastic managers within the Football League as well, English coaches, um, you know, they're doing remarkable jobs. Um, and I think, and hopefully, there'll, there'll be, like again, um, more opportunities for them. You, you only have to, like, look, you know, uh, fellow Scouser, Ryan Lowe, what he achieved last year at Berry under those circumstances. If you, if you were to think of any Premier League manager with uh, a mid table team with. Yeah. The situation that happened at Berry to go on and win the, the Premier League, he'd be the most wanted manager in world football. Yeah. Uh, and you doing, know, a, doing another good job down at uh, Plymouth as well. And and you know, and there's many more like Ryan as well that are doing a fantastic job. So it is, it's very pleasing to hear your thoughts, Neil, on uh, the current crop of, of young but also still existing English coaches that have been in the game for many, many years as well. So you know, fingers crossed, we, we, we definitely see the, the evolving of the, the English coaches getting more opportunities at, at the highest level. Yeah, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. And like I said, they're, they're now prepared to, to go through that time on the grass. Yeah. To get that experience, to gain that experience that will stand them in good stead for when... Uh, when we're all hoping they do get these big opportunities. 100%. And then the last question then for yourself, Neil, is, you know, looking back on your time throughout your kind of whole career from playing academy coach, first team coach, coach education, coach educator now, you know, if, you know, where do you see, how, how do you see the, the, the game shaping with, uh, you know, in the next 10 years? And I think it's, this is really important one. And we talk about this a lot as kind of, you know, from a, you know, a young player point of view and a coaching point of view about, you know, preparing ourselves. And you've talked about preparation is definitely key to success, about preparing ourselves for the game uh, within 10 years' time. Uh, again, <laughs> difficult to put into a, a brief answer. Uh, I think it will change. Again, always will it'll always evolve things will develop new things will come in i don't think the principles of the game change it, it it's still an invasion game yeah you're still trying to beat the team at the other end you're still trying to score more goals than them how you go about that people have their own opinion and would would be here for another hour if uh, we had to <laughs> get into that debate uh so the game will change i think data is becoming a massive area in football and uh, not I mean there's you know sports science and but but in terms of recruiting and analyzing players uh, the numbers are becoming more and more influential I think we've just got to be careful we don't go too lose much. the coach's eye yeah and, and rely totally on data I think it's got to be data to support or yeah. challenge the coach's eye you yeah. still can't get away from that. But I think that will become a, an ever-increasing area for coaches. So I think being able to code games and uh, not just rely on your support staff, but, but 
to be able to do that and, and form your own analysis and look for what you're trying to get out. I think that's certainly something that coaches will need to get to get better at. And like I said, just study the game, observe matches, see what's happening, observe other sports without, I'm going to repeat myself again, look, look outside the game. What can we learn from other sports in terms of how they go about business and lead and create that high performing team? Because I think there, there will be things, just as other sports come into football to see what they can gain. It's, it's a two-way street. Don't be, so, don't be just closed off and think, you can't learn anything from uh, from outside the game. Neil, what I will say, this is this has been brilliant. You know, really insightful, especially around the you know your career, especially around the the Professional Footballers Association. You know, especially for like non members and the the general football public in terms of what that yeah, association provides and the services it gives to you know, players before, Jordan and after careers. Uh, I think it's been, you know, truly a, an insightful masterclass session. Uh, and again, everyone from Seven Elite Academy and to all our listeners, we, we really, really appreciate the, the time that you've, you've taken out uh, for today. And, uh, and hopefully, Neil, uh, you'll be back out there, back on the courses and, and doing, you know, what you do best. I hope so. There's only so many video conferences you can do isn't there? <laughs> to get back like, out in the fresh air. That's that's it. You, you, I know you, Neil. You, you want to be back on the grass. You want the balls rolling back on the pitch, and yeah, you know, that's that's what we love about you, Neil. And and that's football, isn't it? it is exactly. Can't that's lose sight of the game. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Neil. It's been Take a pleasure. Care. Thanks for asking me. Hopefully, we'll we'll see you soon.